Welcome back to Critical Psychiatry Talks. This week, we are lucky enough to be hearing from Professor Sami Tamimi. He is a UK-based child and adolescent psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience as a practicing clinician and researcher. He has authored over 130 academic articles and several books, including Naughty Boys, Antisocial Behavior, ADHD, and the Role of Culture. In this talk, he outlines the themes from his recently published book, Insane Medicine. In his own words, he digs through the rotten undergrowth which fertilizes the mental health industry. He pulls no punches. He takes psychiatry to task for the frailty of its diagnostic system and the fact that several decades of apparent innovation have borne no fruit in terms of improved outcomes from treatment. He explains that the growth of psychiatric diagnoses has convinced an increasing proportion of the population that they are experiencing mental disorders, leading to a fear of our ordinary emotions and undermining our natural resilience. He focuses on how people can get caught in the trap of long-term psychiatric healthcare and how they can escape from this trap and find safe ways back to health and contentment. He believes a revolution in mental health care is inevitable and that the current system has failed. We hope you enjoy this session. So, um, first of all, I like to give a quiz and see where people are at. So, which one of the following factors has the biggest impacts on outcomes from treatment following of common mental health problems? You can shout out what you think. A, therapeutic relationship. B, factors outside of therapy. C, matching model to diagnosis. Or D, number of sessions. A or B. 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 A or B. B. Or A. Yeah. A, A and B. Yeah. No, you can only have that's one. That's a cop-out. Yeah, that's a cop-out, exactly. Which one are you going to go for? Some A's, some B's? B. 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 Correct. That's B. Right. It's um, according to the various meta-analysis, particularly the work of Bruce Wampold and colleagues, who's looked at thousands over the years, Factors outside of therapy, all the things that the patient walks in with from their social background, employment status, um, beliefs about therapy account for anything up to 85% of the variance in outcome. So it's, it's, it's the biggest and most significant bits, which I always think um, reminds me that the most important things that happen in patients lives have nothing to do with us we see them if we're lucky and i'm a child psychiatrist so i think i'm luckier than most of you that i'll see sometimes get to see people one hour a week not very often but sometimes i do um, but that's still a tiny bit of their real life what's going on in their real life their histories their beliefs their um, attitudes uh, what's happened to them these are all hugely more impactful on outcomes than anything we can do yeah this one is the easier easier one which of the following factors from within treatment has the biggest impact on outcome model or technique professional training experience or therapeutic relationship d, d. what did you say say it louder d d yeah are you all in agreement d. That it's d? d. Day. Yes, yes, I think we're all, we're all doing yeah, it that. Is. It is. Model or technique, according to these um, big meta-analyses, has less than 1% impact overall on variance of outcomes. So when you pit a properly controlled model against another properly controlled model, 
there's really no difference in outcome. This is for common mental health problems. And there's a big suggestion that they might be also the case for more severe mental health problems as well. So once people are in the room, the thing that's going to have the biggest impact is how well you can connect. And it's not a straightforward thing around just like empathy and listening. These are very important. But for example, there's some evidence that being able to repair a therapeutic rupture has a really powerful impact on outcomes. So sometimes if you can challenge somebody and they're pissed off with you, but you can work through that, that in itself can be very impactful. And of course, for some people, in terms of having a common idea about how you're going to work, for some people, they don't want you to give strategies. For other people, they want you to give strategies. You know, you have to figure these things out in each therapeutic relationship. This has much more impact than trying to figure out yourself what you think should be the right treatment model. According to Lambert, which of the percentage of the people entering community mental health treatments in the USA were either not responding to treatment or deteriorating whilst in care? This is basically a review he wrote around community mental health services in the USA. What percentage do you think were either not responding or deteriorating? 40 or 60. Think of your own experience. How often do you get patients that you see and once they started in the mental health service, keep coming back? About 75. That's the correct answer. Mm. Only 25% of those entering into community mental health treatment centers were actually improving. Public education programs that promote an understanding that mental illnesses are just like physical illnesses has helped decrease public stigma towards the mental ill. Is that true or false? False. Anybody think it's true? You're not going to say if you do. <laughs> it is false. Actually, there's been over 30 studies now using different methodologies. And basically, the idea of mental illnesses being just like any other illnesses is associated in people's minds with patients being unpredictable, potentially dangerous, and a desire for greater social distance. A model that says that people are mentally distressed or mentally unwell because bad things have happened to them tends to be associated in the public with a greater likelihood of empathy and a desire to help. So actually, the straightforward medical model appears to make public stigma worse. Some patients feel it helps them with their own feelings, but in terms of public attitudes, that seems to be the outcome of the research. The relationship between use of mental health treatments and disability as a result of a mental health condition is that the greater use of mental health treatments in society, so this is looking at population levels, is associated with rising rates of disability, falling rates of disability, or there's no correlation. So rising rates of disability is B, A is falling rates of disability, and C is there's no correlation. E. 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 You're all going for the same thing. Is that after treatment? Yes, it is what, after treatment. What kind of disabilities does it? So uh, actually, this is more. This is more of a population level studies. So when you look at the availability and the use of mental health treatments, both psychological and use of psychiatric medication. The more a society seems to use this, the greater the number of people okay. who are registered as having long-term disability. And this is usually measured by the numbers of people claiming disability allowance, where the reason for claiming disability allowance is mental health related. The most common one, about 50% of those who claim for mental health disability related disability allowances for depression. In head-to-head -head trials, CBT has overall been found to be superior to other psychotherapies in treating depression. True or false? That's true. Sorry. False. Oh. It's true, but it is false, actually. 
when whenever you and it's the same for OCD for post-traumatic stress disorder for anxiety disorders when properly controlled in other words same number of sessions therapists who believe in their model who are getting supervision in their model in head-to-head -head trials there there's no advantage CBT basically has the advantage because of what I call I've got a bigger one than yours <laughs> It's because it's been the most researched. This is what comes out again and again. And, and that's where its superiority, perceived superiority comes from. But actually in head-to-head -head trials, there's no advantage for CBT over other models properly delivered. Is, that, is, that a, is there any particular models that have, been, have had head-to-head -head trials? Psychodynamic, brief psychodynamic, uh, interpersonal therapy, those are the common ones that have been done with depression. Also, family therapy and couples therapy has been done uh, in with depression. And then you've got various other models once you start going into other, you know, from behavioral to psychodynamic to systems. They all come up as equivalents. They basically work for a similar percentage of people and don't work for a similar percentage of others. In a survey of 1,000 young people that was carried out last year, the following percentage believed they had or have had a mental disorder. The two big ones, probably. I was thinking 68. 68%. Oh my gosh. So nearly, nearly three in four people by the time, I think the, the survey went up to 25, by the time they're 25 years old, think they have or have had a mental disorder. What year was that? Last year. This was a, a, a survey of a thousand young people last year. It would have been different 20 years ago. I'm pretty sure it would. It's, it's about people's perception, isn't it? So um, if you'd have asked the same question 20 years ago, I'm pretty doubtful you'd have had a similar percentage of people who think they might have or did have a mental disorder. According to a study, a meta-analysis, because th this is becoming a bit more popular, comparing, because RCTs in various treatments have been done using similar methodologies since about the 19, early to mid-1960s. So we can now have sort of some reasonable comparison about what RCTs were finding in you know, 50 years ago compared to more recently. So for outcomes for ADHD, childhood depression, and uh, conduct disorders, over time, have they basically outcomes stayed the same? Got better? In other words, better outcomes are being achieved now compared to the 1960s when these studies were first being done. Have got worse, or some have got better and some have got worse? E, E. B, they've got better, better outcomes. C. It's going to be C because you're showing us. <laughs> actually, actually the, the, the outcomes used to be better in studies that were done 40, 50 years ago. It is possible, there's not an explanation for this, but it is possible that the studies were being done earlier by people who are more enthusiastic and by populations who are more enthusiastic because it felt like these were brand new things that were being investigated. People were more aligned and had stronger beliefs about them. But the, the message from that is technically speaking, we have not made any advance. So if you look at uh, studies with adults in, uh, for CBT, for example, CBT outcomes for depression are slightly worse now than the early studies. We don't seem to have made any technical advances in terms of outcomes, either using medication or using therapies. Technically, we're just going around in circles as far as I can see. In terms of ADHD though, is that the treatments that are used now, were those around, how long have they been around for? Were they around in the 60s or? It, yeah, stimulants are actually been around since the 30s, 
they started being used in the 60s, but then they started taking off, particularly in America, in the 70s. But it wasn't really until the 90s that they started becoming much more widespread. And, and so as a child psychiatrist, I was, it was in the mid-90s in my training where these things started really taking off. The treatments haven't necessarily changed, so that could be another reason, couldn't it, boy? Yeah, okay. although I, I guess this research is trying to look at equivalence as best as they can in terms of methodology. According to research published in 2015, the Children and Young People's IAPT, um, they had pilot sites, and the Children and Young People's IAPT was different to the adult IAPT because it involved a whole service transformation. So this was an attempt for not just having a separate IAPT service, but the whole of CAMS is meant to be following the IAPT principles. This has now been in place nationally so that all the CAMS in England and Wales, at least, should be following the IAPT model, which is a treatment pathway model. In other words, you get a diagnosis of depression, you go on the depression pathway. Anxiety disorder, so the percentage in their pilot sites, they had nine pilot sites and they had uh, seven treatment pathways. What do you think the percentage who showed in their definition of clinical improvement? Bear in mind, this was the pilot sites that led to the model that's been implemented nationally. A, 16 to 43% were improving, showing improvement. So this is by different pathway. B, 26 to 53%, C, 6 to 36%, or D, 36 to 63%? A, B, or D? B or D. What would you think, um, as a, a slight aside, what would you think would be a reasonable a percentage improvement that you would look for to think, okay, we've got something good enough to roll out and implement across the country? D. Something like D. Maybe B. Maybe B. B. Yeah, I think B would be, a, B would be good enough. Yeah. yeah. So this was what they found. In, in one of the pathways, according to the child ratings, I think that was for social anxiety, only 6% rated improvement. The highest was for generalized anxiety by ratings by parents was 36% showing clinical, mm -hmm. rating clinical improvement at the end of treatment. So that's what our national program is based on. According to a study in 2018, I know about this study because I also wrote a commentary paper. I was asked to write a commentary paper on this. So it reassessed patients who'd completed treatment in IAPT. And basically they reassess, this, this person's research, he reassessed nearly 100 patients by doing standardized questionnaire followed by an interview. And the percent he assessed as recovered was, which one of those do you think? A. I bet it's going to be low though, isn't it? <laughs> it's probably B or C, isn't it? <laughs> 9%. IAP's own yeah. figures had said um, that in, in that area that about um, 50 something percent had shown significant improvement and could be rated as recovered. But when he did his interviews and the qualitative stuff was also very interesting. A lot of people who went according to his study felt that they were given short shrift. They weren't really listened to. The model felt like, you know, it wasn't necessarily the thing that they were wanting to talk about they had to follow a certain pathway they were told they will have an interview by phone they didn't want an interview you know there was lots of these types of things of feeling that something was imposed on them as opposed to uh, being part of a collaborative process so are these figures better for general cams treatment um, and they're just reflective of cams iapt so this last one was adult iapt Ah, okay, sorry. Yeah. So neither IAPT are doing particularly well, if you want to look behind their figures. Is that sort of a number needed to treat one in 10 then? So 10 people have to have treatment for one to recover? Number needed to treat is, I guess 
this wasn't quite that sort of study. That's just kind of a specific way of looking at things. And I'm not sure number needed to treat is, is a terribly good way because often number needed to treat doesn't tell you number needed to harm either. We often separate those. It's just this was, it was basically he had nine out of the, the interviews he did, 95 interviews and nine of them he rated as, according to the standardized, a psychiatric screening questionnaire that he was using. Only nine of them he could rate as recovered. So our first problem is this, that in truth, if you want to be objective about things, there's no such thing as a diagnosis in psychiatry, apart from the dementias. Now, I used to say this was my opinion. I don't say this is my opinion anymore. I just think this is a fact. The reason why I would say it's a fact is based on an understanding of classification. Classification systems, we've got multiple classification systems and different systems of classification serve different functions. A diagnostic classification system is a causally based system of classification. That's why when we go to the doctor and we've got pains in the chest, we ask them what's causing that pain in the chest. Or we've got a cough. When we're going about diagnosis as a doctor, we're trying to understand what I would say is the proximal cause of that cough. And there might be other things that are related to that cough that we don't yet fully understand or can't. But diagnosis is a system of classification based on cause. That's why if your car engine is making funny noises and not starting properly, the garages will offer you diagnostics on what might be wrong. That's what a diagnostic classification is. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you accept um, PTSD as a diagnosis, um, given that it's causal, maybe? Well, PTSD is an interesting one because it has separated out the idea of trauma as being causal for specific things. But if you look across diagnostic categories that we use, that we call diagnosis, the likelihood of having traumatic or various adverse experiences or what I would call psychological injury is high in all of them. So to, to, to take um, um, PTSD and separate that off is perhaps an example of where we have one odd outlier that shouldn't be an outlier. Yeah. But if you look at, uh, and, and that's quite a good point, what you made about PTSD, because that implies a cause. So that could be a diagnosis, but it could become the main diagnosis that we use. But if you look at most of the things that we use, such as, for example, take depression. If I was to ask you to, to tell me what depression is, you're not going to be able to talk about cause. You're not going to be able to say depression is a chemical imbalance that occurs when we have insufficient serotonin or whatever because we don't go to that level. We have no investigations. We have, all we rely on is subjective opinion. So in order to tell me what depression is, you're gonna to have to provide me with a description. You follow me? So if you look through our diagnostic or so-called diagnostic system, all you're gonna come across are different descriptions. Descriptions of experiences, feeling states, behaviors. But all of these have the requirement that you need to create meaning out of them. And the thing that we can't escape in psychiatric practice is that whereas in the rest of medicine there are plenty of debates around boundaries, around over-medication, around um, when to treat, what to treat. In psychiatry, 
we also have debates around the parameters. Yeah. So we can't escape being able to delve into meanings. We, we simply can't escape the subjectivity and the clinical impressions and where they come from because we have a system of classification that is descriptive. If we start thinking that we have an explanatory system, we are getting into all sorts of problems. And I think this is one of the issues as to why psychiatric practice has simply not progressed in terms of the technical aspects. I've just We've just talked about some of the figures on outcomes. We have no window at all into understanding what's going on biologically with the various experiences we are classifying. Are you following me? Yeah? So we, we can't escape the falling into situations where we start creating meanings and some of these meanings that we create might not be, they might feel like they're helpful in the short term, but they might not be helpful in the long term. Because if we say your low mood is caused by depression, that has a lot of consequences. We've just constructed a story, essentially. We have constructed a way of making sense of something. We've not discovered what's going on, I mean, in reality, it's, it's similar to saying the cause of the pain in your head is a headache. A description cannot cause itself. But when we do that, which we do a lot in psychiatric practice, we're actually priming, we're seeding, we're hypnotizing people into thinking a particular way about some experience that's going on in their life. And we cannot escape that we become participants in how meaning is being constructed. Now, there's a whole lot of other slides and I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to bypass them for the sake of time. Because in, in some way, just lingering on, on this particular point, I think is quite an important one. And, and um, it's, it's something that, I feel my trainings never really prepared me to unpack and understand and, and become more aware of what role I might accidentally play in creating patience and helping contribute towards this picture of increasing numbers of people who are getting stuck in the system. Uh, because we have a certain amount of social power i kind of feel like what we say can function like a hypnotic suggestion and those hypnotic suggestions can be useful things or they can be um, unhelpful particularly in the long run if you're talking to somebody who's hearing voices and you're using a framework that these are understandable experiences given what's happened to them, you're preparing them for a very different meaningful framework than telling them that your voices are the result of an illness which requires treatment. And uh, this is a biological, genetic, disorder and you may need this treatment for the rest of your life these are very powerful things to say to people don't you think yeah and and what are we setting them up for then so let's have a think about things the why question is something that comes up a lot it's a it's um people imagine that we are going to be helping them understand what's wrong with them and by doing that they can go and research and also we'll have the correct treatment that will help them get better yeah 
But the only thing I think, uh, so I, I think we can't answer the why question. That's my basic position. I don't think it is possible for us to answer the why question. And I liken it, I liken it to peeling a never ending onion. As soon as you uncover one layer, another one reveals itself and then another one and then another one. Because the human condition is made up of so many different interacting parts from all that was happening before you're born to the, you know, the, the, your genetic inheritance, to your nutritional status, to the state of your mother, to how your family is functioning at the time, to the various people you meet, to what happens at school, et cetera, et cetera. All we can say, I think, is that the research says that your probability of experiencing a psychiatric problem increases with greater experience of adversity. And it particularly increases with greater experience of adversity as a child. So I think that's about as far as we can go. With particular people who are talking about particular experiences, we maybe help them to connect some of their experiences more directly. And any of you who've worked long enough in psychiatry, you'll know that your clinics are full of people who've had shit lives, true? It's, it's, it's just, this is the, the groups of people who come to us. And actually they're, they're also the groups of people who come to the door of GPs regularly. So most of GP land is populated by a, a, you know, quite a similar population to the sort of population we see in psychiatry. One of the things that I think is worth keeping in mind about when it happens to when you're a child is that firstly, you may not make the connection that this is a traumatic experience because it's just your normal. And secondly, you are likely to um, absorb an idea. And I talk to people about this. You're likely to absorb an idea because as children, we're more egocentric, just in terms of the level of psychological development we have. You're more likely to see the world as an extension of you. And so if your parent beats you up regularly or abandons you or other or, or molests you, there's a part of you that will think that you are the cause of this. And sometimes it can be even to a kind of supernatural level that somehow bad things are always going to happen. And there's something about you that causes bad things to happen around you. So a lot of people I see who've been through those adverse experiences earlier in their life have this sense that there is something bad about them that can't be changed. So it's one to look out for. And you can simply explain that to them. We've said about um, therapeutic relationships and what that means in terms of practice is that technique needs to be led by relationship, not the other way around. You don't need a good therapeutic relationship in order to deliver the right technique. So it's not a case of like, the good therapeutic relationship is, you know, a bit of empathy, a bit of mirroring is then like the anesthetic before you can get in there and, you know, excise the dysregulated emotions or, or correct their, you know, surgically remove their automatic negative thoughts or whatever it is. It, the, the evidence does suggest it's the other way around. You need to match your technique. So, um, I am a strong believer in not following treatment manuals, but thinking of the different models that we have is a bit like a tool bag that we carry around, you know, with different frameworks by which we can interpret, suggest, make sense of, provide intervention, and to use that in a, a kind of a co-construct. So I think the best therapies are co-constructed. And by the way, when you're using medication, if it's with the intention of shifting somebody's mental state in some way, it is psychotherapy. It's all psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, that's what it's, yeah. So 
you can't escape in practice. There's no division between pharmaco and psychotherapy in my view. When you're doing pharmacotherapy, you have to have a story. You have to have a way of putting it in a context that's meaningful to the person. So you're always involved in that process of co-constructing something. So your technique is chosen to maintain or hopefully enhance a relationship. Technique being but, mean skills that you apply like CBT or medication yeah. or is that what you mean by technique? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You always have in mind the therapeutic relationship. You might have the Ferrari of techniques, but if you don't know how to drive it, it's no bloody use to you. If you see what I mean. Mm. And if the patient doesn't like it, it's no bloody use to them either. If they won't step into your Ferrari of techniques, then it's it's going to be it's going to be wasted on them. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm probably more rude about most techniques that we have. I, I think nearly all the psychotherapy techniques that we have are what I would call Western folk psychology. So if you strip CBT down, it is basically stop looking at things so negatively, isn't it? With a lot of managerial style talk, very fitting for kind of a neoliberally obsession with efficiency and development and so on. If you strip behavior therapy back to its core, it's basically face your fears, isn't it? Is there anything more complicated to it than that? So I think all of these things, when you strip them back, they come from Western folk psychology. So things that would pass as common sense in a Western individualistic society. And they're sort of peppered with nice, exclusive, scientifically sounding language. That's basically it. I would um, exclude some aspects of psychoanalysis and systemic theory from that because I think they go a little deeper and engage with more philosophical and meanings. So those models are probably less, in fact, those models have probably informed Western folk psychology as much as the other models are derived from Western folk psychology. But anyway, I digress. That's, a, that's just an uh, interesting aside. Well, one of the things that um, I've become a lot more aware of as I've carried on in developing my life as a psychiatrist is that, that we have different ways of framing how we think about the models that we use. So in most models, the traditional idea is that if you think of life as a balance between things going well and things going badly, when people come to see us, it's because the scales are tipped towards things going badly. Yeah, And most of our treatments, whether it's medication or therapies, are inspired by the idea that we do something to reduce the size of the problem. And that's the way we rebalance things, yeah? But in recent years, I've become much more aware of different therapeutic angles. And some of them, which I have found very helpful, they come maybe from a more postmodern perspective. So the narrative therapies, solution-focused, and uh, other allied models focus less on the problems but look at the other side what is going well what goes missing when you start focusing on the problems in your life what do you stop noticing you know stories of suffering are also stories of survival how have you managed to get to this point how did you even manage to get up to make it to the appointment today what is it that keeps you going who is helping you what would people who know you well say when you know they realize that you're getting through this what are the things that we wouldn't notice when we're so focused on the problem so becoming just a lot more aware 
of this other side of the coin. You know, when an adolescent argues with me in a session, I could choose to treat that as them being disrespectful. I could choose to decide that that is an example of how they have problems and how conflictual they are. Or I could choose to see it as somebody with a bit of courage and a bit of strength of mind to do something like that, to argue with an authority figure and put forward their opinions. So there's lots of situations that as you become sensitized to the different ways of working, you can start seeing things in different ways. So one thing that's really informs my work now is this awareness that when people come with their problem stories, there's a lot more to their lives than that. And just keeping a lookout and being aware and of opportunities to help them notice those coping abilities, those strengths that they have. And the other thing that I've become aware of is, you know, in psychiatry, we often talk about predisposing, precipitating, perpetuating. I now think perpetuating factors is, prob is, is probably the area where I make the biggest interventions now. And I call this the problem becomes the problem. And I think our whole system and our whole diagnostic structure and our whole idea that you've got a problem that requires a diagnosis followed by a treatment that should make you better actually creates more of a, this issue of where the problem starts to inflate itself. So one way to describe that is to think about insomnia. Everybody's had insomnia, so this should make sense to people. And, and actually, when I talk in these terms, it does make sense to a lot of people. You first get insomnia because there are things on your mind. But by the third, fourth or fifth night, what keeps you awake? You're focusing on trying to sleep. <laughs> exactly. It's impossible. So at some point, insomnia starts to cause insomnia. That starts to go around your head. Oh, not my God, I'm going to have another night like the last few nights. I must get up tomorrow because I've got a really busy day. I've got an exam. I've got this. I've got that. Oh, my God, if I don't sleep, then, you know, I'll only have two hours left, you know. So at some point, insomnia causes insomnia. But follow this through now. What happens when you start having decided that you've got a problem called insomnia is you start looking for solutions. So what happens if you try, you know, I don't know, some app and it helps for a few nights and you think, great, but then a few nights later it's back again and it's gradually, what do you start to think? A bit more hopeless. You start, yeah, hope starts to seep in. Uh, sorry, hope starts to seep away. You start to think this is a bigger problem. So imagine now you've gone to your GP, you've got a sleeping tablet, you're sleeping better, after several weeks, several months maybe, it's, it's coming back again. What's happening to your sense of this problem? Maybe a sense of loss of control? Yeah. The helplessness? Helplessness, loss of control, absolutely. It now probably starts to take up a lot of your time. And it feels like this is a problem that's kind of taking over your life, yeah? And it feels like no matter what I do, it keeps coming back. Take that model and think about it in depression, think about it in anxiety, think about it in voice hearing. Voice hearing was probably the place that I really began, one of the areas that this idea really began to settle to me, that the voices are something that are alien, that I have to get rid of in order by my life to feel better. So as the consultant in the team, the cases that I get have often had several interventions and they're now coming to me because they imagine medication. And if I just straight go down that, I'm really inviting them into this treadmill. So what might you do? Do you try and see how, try and focus a bit on what things are going well 
in the person's life and how what despite that issue what they can still do so kind of the wheel of life almost that it's I mean, your, your questions and observations are, are very, are, are pretty spot on, really. I mean, that's one of the things. At some point, I realized, and it was, it was a weird thing, because I used to get periods of insomnia, and I used to get troubled by it. And then one day, my wife said to me, God, you, do, you don't half make a big fuss about your sleep. And I think a couple of days later, I had this sort of epiphany. And what I realized was that I got so caught up with turning something that's actually fairly ordinary, something that's fairly common, something that happens to a lot of people, I started turning it into a problem and eventually into a problem that needed a solution. And the epiphany was, if I have a shit night's sleep, I have a shit night's sleep it was actually to stop trying to solve it. It was something along the lines of accepting suffering and discomfort and inconvenience and as a part of what happens in our lives. And not necessarily turning it into a problem that needs a solution. So actually a lot of my work these days is what I call um, no therapy therapy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's trying to help people step back from an idea that they have a problem that needs a solution. And what it is, it's working on changing your relationship to the problem, changing how you feel about the problem. Instead of feeling that the problem is something that you have to get rid of, something that's controlling your life, something that if you don't change it, it won't, your life won't get better. If you can change your relationship to that, so that you accept this is a part of your life, it will help you with being able to get away from that problem in other bits of your life. And the other thing that I've discovered when I, the more I've done this work is that people come to their own conclusions in their own way and in their own style and in their own time. Once you start introducing this idea, people figure something out at some point and it can be very unexpected how they do it or when they do it or with what. So I've had, um, I've not looked at this more formally, but I've had a reasonable amount of success with some of our chronic cases where I've just been working with them to try not to solve the problem. So I use a lot of, lot of metaphors and imagery. Sometimes we think that we have to dig deeper and deeper to find the bit of gold, but actually we just needed to move sideways and it was just lying there on the surface, you know, that sort of thing. Sammy, can I ask a question? What would you suggest, because quite often to get to see someone in the mental health service in general adult, you have to have gone through um, multiple medications, multiple times in IAPT. You even now have to see a mental health nurse. So we often get people expecting a solution because they've been offered loads of things. And sometimes I say, well, you know, I don't have one. Um, but it seems to no one seems to give that message earlier along. It seems to be, well, maybe I don't see it. What would you suggest then? Because most of the people to come to us have to, it's quite hard to. It's not as if you have to see probably five or six people to get an appointment with a psychiatrist. So what would you suggest we do then? Exactly. This, this is, this is the, the caseload that we end up seeing as psychiatrists, the people who've had multiple interventions and it, they can be psychological medication, both. And if the problem keeps coming back, this is the process that this size of this problem is, is enlarging. So I would, I, I, I literally use now more or less what I said to you. I, I asked them about, I, I use insomnia as my primary metaphor. I have lots of other ones that I use. The weather is a good one you know that the, uh, our emotions are a bit like the one of the one of the things that i hate is this idea of emotional dysregulation it's, to me that's like an oxymoron emotions are not regulated that's cognitive 
is where we do regulations. And I think we, we have a culture that's really afraid of emotions. We, we, um, we like to think in our, in our um, you know, sort of anti-stigma and awareness campaigns that it's really good to talk about. But we have this romanticized idea that emotions are something you can talk about but we don't want people to show their emotions. If they start showing how angry they are, they'll get locked up or sent to the psychiatrist. You know what I mean? So um, we, we, we've got a lot of these ideas around that this thing is bad for you. You shouldn't be feeling like that. You shouldn't be behaving like that. And we can get trapped in this. And the more we, we're being conditioned to think that you need a therapy, to solve this problem. And these, these are the people that then come to our door. There's people who've been cultured into this idea that they've got a problem. And of course, by the time they come to see you, it must be really severe because you've been through several levels. So um, it now needs a massive hammer, not just a little tap, you know? And it's actually trying to help people come out of that model and help them understand that the more they've gone down this pathway by accident, and the professional system has been part of strengthening that, by accident, we've hypnotized them, that's the word that I would use, into imagining that this is something that unless they get rid of it, life can't improve. But actually, the more you focus on the idea of getting rid of it, the more it has a hold on you sometimes i say um that you're, you're allowed to have emotions and that sort of um creates a, a laugh sometimes well indeed yeah and i mean who doesn't lose their temper who doesn't have times where they feel totally overwhelmed who doesn't have times where they feel hopeless you know and you know and when I use medication, sometimes it can be helpful, more in the short term. I think it can trap people in the long term. I remind people, so again, I use a metaphorical structure. I remind people that a drug can't make an opinion. A drug doesn't have ideas. A drug can't initiate action. What it might do is a bit like the oil that helps them machine turn a bit easier so it might it might create a brief window of opportunity and most of our medications tend to kind of wear off because of homeostasis in the brain and all of that but it might create a window of opportunity but it's what you do with that window of opportunity that's going to make the biggest difference and then if people come back and say yeah i felt a lot better i remind them that that's not can't be the medication. What is it that you have been doing? What is it that you have um, done differently? Because those are the things that will make a difference. And, and if people say, well, no, I haven't done anything differently, I can ask people, well, what have you reconnected with in yourself? Just making sure as much as possible that they take ownership as for, for the change as being something to do with them, not to do with, you know, medication can't make these changes. They can only make you feel a little bit different. How do people respond to these ideas, Sammy? Do, do some people scream at you and tell you you're the worst? That's, a, that's a great question. That's a really good question. Because actually, as I've been, you know, working with this idea, the most common response I get is, anger and frustration towards me. Parents are often more sympathetic, but um, it feels like a slap in the face. What the hell have I been up to? What's going on? Yeah. So I, of course, learned to anticipate that. Yeah. So I tell people, you're so used to imagining this in a different way, that this, you may well go home, feel very angry and frustrated. And, but that seems to break something. Actually, actually, that I've come to realize that that's quite a healthy reaction. Because yeah. it might feel like you've been duped for a while. It's also a bit embarrassing if mm. you walk around 
saying to people, you know, following the anti-stigma campaigns, I've got depression and I'm not, I'm not afraid to say it. Yeah, absolutely. It's embarrassing. You feel like you've been not just had, but you sort of a bit ashamed of yourself. Yeah, yes. And this is where those types of anti-stigma campaign have probably contributed to more people imagining they're carrying something yeah. that is deep, dark and beyond their capacity and requires some special expertise to to really understand and solve it's quite disempowering really isn't it yes yeah very much so yes do you find that patients i guess a portion of them must take to your ideas and must accept it after a, a while do, do you find that they want to come off medication for example or what happened yeah i am more involved in helping people come off medication than starting people on medication i mean i do a bit of both but um that's that's uh, uh, quite a common thing yeah and and sometimes it's because you realize that some of their presentation might actually be side effects i don't know if it is but putting the story that way gives people hope that things might improve if we can help them come off the medication and so they become more prepared to try it. And, and, and the, what about the other interest group? How does your team tolerate you? Are you their least favourite psychiatrist or their most favourite psychiatrist? Well, the way we are in CAMS, we've got a catchment area. So each of us have a catchment area. And my way of working and thinking, I have to say, is very closely aligned. And I think this is generally the case with, with non-psychiatric practitioners. They probably share a lot of these ideas anyway, and a lot of these skepticisms. So the psychologists and uh, therapists and nurses in my team we we get on really well, always have, yeah. And I do get on well with the other psychiatrists, you know, on a personal level. I don't I don't have them, um, um, but we know we we work in different ways. But um, yeah. Can I ask, in what circumstances would you give medication? The most common reason for giving medication is because I've been lobbied. <laughs> And so it, it, it's more to do with maintaining a therapeutic alliance than anything else. And then it is an opportunity to provide a narrative for what they might look out for and how they might understand if things started to improve. And, and because I'm using that window of opportunity narrative, it means that um, I have hopefully, although this doesn't always work, but I have hopefully created the idea that this is something that they will not need long-term. I have to say that hasn't always worked. People are people. And uh, so, you know, there's some who've decided that's it, that's <laughs> they're staying on it and there's no changing their mind about that. Well, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Sammy, can I just ask you, do you prescribe um, treatment for ADHD or diagnose it at all? Because I, I haven't done a CAMS job and I have seen people when they turn 18, they've been referred to the adult teams and they don't seem to remember who diagnosed them. There's no information. The parents aren't there. And they told me they got diagnosed by when they were about eight years old. And I don't know if that's common practice because I haven't ever done CAMS. Yeah, um, unfortunately, yeah, ADHD became much more of a thing in the mid-90s. I was there when it started to be, um, I mean, it was a very rare diagnosis in this country. We had a different, we used to use hyperkinetic disorder. I mean, these are all constructs anyway. Uh, and then um, sort of conduct disorder went out of vogue, not much marketing for that. You know, it's not something that would bring much profit, whereas ADHD comes with the idea that there's some sort of medical condition um, that can be ameliorated with a specific um, treatment. Uh, and it depends on where you are, that because uh, a lot of it 
got migrated to pediatricians. So a lot of the time it's pediatricians who are making the diagnoses and, and, and um, giving the treatment. So it just depends on where you are. So the ones that we get tends to be the ones because locally it's pediatricians. And then they come to us as adolescents or um, pre-adolescents because either things aren't improving or they're now also talking. Um, so I've had quite, I've had a, a reasonable number who've come with hallucinations that turn out to be medication related. Wow. Um, you know, people who started talking about having these odd experiences mm. or uh, later in adolescence coming with self-harm and depression. Again, this I think could be for some of them, you know, the results of long-term medication so I don't commonly get involved in doing the first diagnosis, but uh, I see a fair number of the ones who've sort of graduated from the pediatric services. What do you do then? Because um, I, I, I never knew they weren't diagnosed by CAMS. Well, it depends. As I say, it depends on um, what the commissioning arrangements in your area. Can you undiagnose it then? I have undiagnosed people. Yes, you can undiagnose it. I have undiagnosed people when they've asked me because for, um, you know, the diagnosis like ADHD, particularly if they're taking stimulant medication, will, um, it is an automatic no-no for things like the forces, release, mm. uh, and um, it, it generally works against you uh, for uh, a lot of jobs. So um, I've had, uh, I sometimes keep my graduates until they're 19, 20, if we're involved in gradually weaning them off. So the majority, nearly everyone I've seen, I've weaned off by the time they leave our service. And, uh, and as I say, some of them, because, you know, when um, the, the original uh, way ADHD was conceived of when it was first described and so on and, and if you go back and look at the early studies the early studies said um, only about 15% had um, symptoms of ADHD when they entered into their 20s in other words 85% basically grew out of it and that was the whole idea that it was a developmental disorder it was like you know asthma eczema things like that most people who have that as a child, as you're kind of biologically immature, you eventually grow out of a lot of these things. So ADHD was originally conceived like that. But of course, marketing came along and we've had some very strong advocates of adult ADHD in this country who've contributed to popularizing the notion that it's a lifelong disorder and that it's often missed and that, you know, so we've had an increasing clientele who are looking for a diagnosis as adults. But as a, as a child psychiatrist, this is what I say to people. I say, you know, most of you are gonna grow out of this. You're very likely to grow out of this. So as you're growing into adolescence, we should see what you're like on lower medication and maybe even wean you off if you're ready or when you're, especially when you leave school and a lot of the people I see are from the poorer bits and they, they're often more geared towards wanting to do mechanics or bricklaying or some something more manual and they they, they they know the medication might have helped them concentrate a bit better at school but once they're out of that they don't really need this is why the idea of diagnosis i don't think works in psychiatry because isn't it the case that the diagnosis you are likely to get depends on the consultant you'll see rather than the problem mm -hmm. you present yourself Different consultants are into different things. Some people see depression wherever they look. Some people see bipolar disorder wherever they look. Some people see paranoia or, you know. And if you look at people's notes who've been in the system long enough, they've probably started collecting diagnosis as well as different medications over the years as they've seen different consultants from different doctors. There's been a lot of conversation about de-prescribing, but before you can de-prescribe, is there a role for de-diagnosing as a sort of concept in practice? Yeah, I think de-diagnosing is something that we ought all to be able to do and to get some training in and to get some understanding of how we might go about that and how do you help people talk that one through? 
I mean, often I've heard it said that the industry does not market so much the products as the market. Yes. And, and in our, our line of work, the market is the diagnosis. That's right. That's the major marketing is to do with um, trying to increase the pool of people who might approach for a diagnosis. Yeah. I guess if, if, if one has any understanding of, of industry, there's a need for some sort of ecosystem that has an adequate way to um, represent um, a counter push. Mm. Maybe that's a good position paper to put to put together the, the importance of de-diagnosis in the armamentarium of psychiatrists. Yes, that's a really good idea. thought-provoking session. As we have mentioned before, these talks are offered via Zoom to trainee members of the Critical Psychiatry Network, and we usually have very enriching discussions after the presentation, which are not included in this podcast. So if you want to be part of those discussions, uh, please drop us an email, which is in the podcast description, and otherwise we will see you next time on Critical Psychiatry Talks. Bye for now.